The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. I'm proud to call it home. This is my country. I'll never stand alone. It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. Well, here we are on a Sunday morning taking a couple of hour break, we hope. From a winter storm. It's the middle of May, folks. I put my sweaters away already. But we digress. There are a whole lot of people in politics and in the media whose purpose is to inflame your passions rather than to reason with you. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I start with the numbers. And so here are some numbers for this week. There were there are about a million legal immigrants to the United States every year for most of the last 40 years. There were 2 million illegal immigrants granted amnesty in the 1980s in exchange for stronger immigration laws and regulation that never happened. For example, a mandatory E-Verify program. There are an estimated 12 million undocumented workers in the United States today. We really aren't sure of that number at all. There are 1.8 million DACA and minor children of those many millions who are now living in limbo. And there are 100,000 Central Americans storming the southern border in March of this year and again in April, showing no sign of slowing. And there are probably another 50,000 global persons who in that same two-month period overstayed their, their visitor visas to the United States and just disappeared. Our immigration system is a mess. And the just-announced Trump administration plan on immigration does not address any of the issues I've just mentioned before it implements a new merit-based legal immigration system that doesn't constrain the number of immigrants in any way. No immigration plan that makes sense doesn't start with fixing what is broken today. So here to help us to answer that question and others is Mark Krikorian, a nationally recognized expert on immigration issues 
who has served as the executive director of the Center of Immigration Studies since 1995. So this is the man who knows all the numbers. The Center, an independent nonpartisan research organization in Washington, D.C., examines and critiques the impact of immigration on the United States. It's animated by a pro-immigrant, low-immigration vision, which seeks fewer immigrants but a warmer welcome for those admitted. The center was established in 1985 in response to the need for reliable, fact-based research in the immigration area. Mr. Kerkorian's knowledge and expertise in the immigration field is sought by Congress as well as mainstream and new media. He frequently testifies before Congress and has published articles in numerous outlets, beginning with the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and the New York Times and too many to just mention. He's a contributor at National Review Online and has appeared on all the major cable and broadcast news networks. And his Twitter is at Mark S. Krikorian. That's K-R-I-K-O-R-I-A-N. And we'll put that link in the podcast version of this program. Mark, thank you so much. I'm so honored to have you here this morning. And it's such a big and complicated problem that I hardly know where to begin. So let's begin at the beginning. The um, first of all, I'm glad I'm delighted to be on the show. Um, warm and sunny California. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the um, I think they got the calendar yeah. mixed up. You know, April showers make May flowers. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, the um, the I don't know. The first thing I think to start with is the numbers. Um, there are something like 45, 46 million people in the United States who are either immigrants or, I mean, who are immigrants themselves. Some are citizens, some are illegal immigrants, some have green cards. And there's more than 60 million people who are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. So that's, we're talking, you know, one in five almost of our entire population are either immigrants or the children of immigrants. So it's a big phenomenon. doesn't say anything about policy, but the point is you need to understand what numbers are. Each year, we take about 1.1 million new legal immigrants. And the number of new illegal aliens obviously changes because some come, some leave. There's a lot of churn, but something like 300,000 a year. And um, Additive? 300,000 uh, additive? Probably not additive because there's some subtraction because there are always people, some people go home, a few people die, some people finagle a green card and so they stop being illegal aliens. The illegal population, like you had said in the intro, we're really not sure. It's something like 11 or 12 million. There are people who say, and there was actually a study out of Yale a couple months ago, that said, no, there's really 22 million illegal aliens. This was done by a couple of scholars who, you know, I mean, it wasn't they were dishonest, but it's that they didn't know anything about immigration. They were sort of using some kind of gimmicky um, math games to come up with the number. There's no way it can be 22 million. And the reason is... We've posted this on our website at cis.org, an analysis of it. If there were 10 million extra people that we didn't know about, you would see it in the school enrollment statistics, in the birth statistics, the death statistics. It's not like people die without it somewhere being recorded. Um, And so I'm reasonably confident that 11 or 12 million is the right number. Maybe it's 13, um, but it's not 22. So, I mean, we have a kind of a good enough idea of how big the problem is of illegal immigration. 
And a lot of those people have been here for a long time. There's no question about it. And in a sense, sort of the first political question is, what do we do about the illegal immigrants who are here? That, in the long run, really isn't the most important question. As far as I'm concerned, the most important question is, how many immigrants are we going to take tomorrow legally? But politically, the, the issue that sort of smacks us in the face is, what do we do about the illegal population who's here? And I actually am not, um, uh, you know, in, uh, sort of averse to considering amnesty for those people, especially yeah. they've been here for a long time. That, I don't like it, but we have tax amnesties. We have parking ticket amnesties. The point of an amnesty is to clean up the mistakes of the past. Absolutely. But, but it's also to make sure you don't have another 11 or 12 million illegal aliens because amnesty is never about the amnesty today. It's about are we going to have another amnesty tomorrow? And that's why the DACA fix has to be a fix, not time-fenced, but condition-based, because there are lots of DACAs that appeared after the 2010 date that's in the Obama uh, administration's uh, effort. So, you know, one of the questions in our early um, email conversation was around around, uh, the current debate in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, about whether or not there should be a citizenship question in the census. In the right. census, yeah. You know, I, I personally, I think if we if we predicated it on there is this is an anonymous statistical study, sure. That that this would be the imperative to get Congress off its backside to finally move on an amnesty that ensures what the American people want: no more amnesties, no more illegal immigration, which starts, I think, with E-Verify. But we're going to take a quick commercial break and you can tell me how you would fix it. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Back in a moment with more Reimagine America on 860 AM. The Answer. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're here with Mark Krikorian, and, and our topic today is immigration. And we, as we went to break, you know, we were saying, how do we fix the current illegal immigration situation in a way that ensures we don't get it uh, another batch of it in 10 years. And so, Mark, is E-Verify the answer, or is there another solution that would be better? It's clearly part of the answer, a big part of it. But the first thing you need to look at is what is the obstacle to public support for an amnesty? Uh, because a lot of most people, you know, when they do polls, uh, they ask these softball questions. Do you think people who've lived here for many years and have kids and aren't criminals and call their mother every Sunday should be allowed to stay and become citizens if they want to. And people are like, yeah, well, yeah, sure, why not? And the thing is, but any poll like that that has me and Chuck Schumer both answering yes doesn't tell you very much. And what I mean here is that the key problem, political problem, is the trust gap between the public and the elites on this issue. Because in 1986, when President Reagan signed that big amnesty bill, Um, close to 3 million people got amnesty, but the promise was, the deal was, that 
they would make hiring illegal immigrants in the future to be illegal. Because before that, it was explicitly permitted in the law to hire illegal aliens. So that was the deal. Clean up the mess of the past by giving people green cards, but go forward by enforcing the law. That promise was not kept. In fact, it was explicitly a lie on the part of some of the pro-amnesty people. And I know that because just a few years later, once everybody was in the pipeline for the amnesty, Ted Kennedy, Orrin Hatch, and the National Council of La Raza got together to Welsh on the deal and make it legal again to hire illegal aliens. They were only stopped in their legislative effort by Coretta Scott King, believe it or not, who said, no, we want to make sure illegal immigrants can't get jobs because in her her specific concern was that black Americans would be able to get those jobs. And that jobs. is still a problem. I it's spoke still a problem, with a yeah. with a black talk show host here on the Salem Network this week who has great concerns about the continued influx having a very negative impact on you know on the black population and its opportunity to to get better wages right, as exactly. well as the and job to, competition. Yeah, and job competition. And so what happened was even though Ted Kennedy did not manage to gut the law, it just wasn't enforced. So even now the ban on hiring illegal aliens is on the books, but in the first 20 years after it passed, it just stopped being enforced. Yeah, and, and, see, and it, it, it's so funny because if you are like me, uh, you know, a, a birth, and we're both first generation birthright citizens, any job I've ever had, the first thing they asked for on day one was where's your passport? Because you have to prove you have a legal right to work in the United States. Yeah, now, or a driver's license or, plus Social Security card. You have to yeah, show ID, yeah. basically, to show that in you're the, legally authorized yeah, to in work. The, in the tech industry, because they know you're going to travel, they say, show oh, us your, pas- your passport. That's interesting. Yeah. interesting. Yeah, they're not allowed to ask specifically just for a passport, though. That's actually illegal. So well, you should have had the Justice Department go after them. <laughs> <laughs> it was just as easy to show I, my passport. I understand. I've done it myself. <laughs> I think the last time I got a job, actually, it's the job I have now. now. I, I showed my uh, passport because it's just easier Yeah, it it shows your identity and your authorization to work. But my point is, as far as the trust gap goes, um, there's no reason to believe that any future deal like the um, amnesty legislation that President Bush was promoting in the mid-2000s or the Gang of Eight bill that Chuck Schumer and and McCain with um, Obama's cooperation were pushing in uh, 2013, 2014, those failed because nobody believed the promises that the law would be enforced going forward. And, you know, that's the key issue. It's, uh, there's, you know, there's, um, what's the saying? Fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. Because you shouldn't be believing somebody who's lying to you twice. In 1986, we, by we I mean the pro-enforcement people, and really the public at large, trusted the pro-amnesty people to keep their part of the bargain. In other words, to back enforcement in the future. They lied. They did not keep the deal. This time, they're going to have to trust us. And the enforcement stuff's going to have to be implemented up and running first. E-Verify is a big part of that. E-Verify is up and running, but it's voluntary still. There are no penalties. If you get back a statement that says the person that you're employing is illegal... You may dismiss them. There is no compulsion to do that, nor is there any penalty on you as an employer for not doing it, which to me is 
crazy. And there's no penalty whatever in a related area. It's the same basic idea. If the Social Security Administration sends you what's called a no-match letter, where you have submitted the Social Security information on a person, but the name that you sent along with that Social Security number doesn't match. Yeah. It's somebody else's number that or they the number, stole or borrowed. Or yeah, the, number's, or the fake. number's fake. Right. And so Social Security only in a month or two ago, I think, resumed sending those letters out. Under Obama, they just stopped doing it. Uh, but there's still no consequences to yeah. it. And that needs to be a basic matter of good governance. In other words, because look, if you don't want, uh, there are libertarians who say, you know, you shouldn't be, you, you shouldn't have to show your social security number and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, we'll get rid of the income tax, get rid of withholding, get rid of social security. When you do all of that, then we're not going to have to have an E-Verify system. But until then, and of course in the real world, that's a permanent part of the way we do things now, having a social security system. It's messed up. I think we can fix it, but it's not going away. When you collect that information from a new hire, which you all have to do anyway, you hire somebody, the E-Verify system, all it is, is you go online and you see if the person's telling you the truth. It's, uh, you know, making that universal for all new hiring seems to me so obvious that it's, I mean, it shouldn't even be a topic for controversy. And yet, it is. And the reason hasn't happened yet is that the left opposes it until every single illegal alien gets amnesty so that it wouldn't apply, so it wouldn't have any effect on anybody. And there are business interests, especially ag interests, agricultural interests, that oppose it until they are promised an unlimited supply of completely controllable, servile workers from abroad. And then they'll go along with it. And so that's the political problem in getting E-Verify. But if E-Verify were up and running, I mean, mandatory for everybody because it's already up and running. About half of new hires already are screened through E-Verify, which is pretty good. Mm -hmm. But obviously the illegal workers are in the other half. You know right. what I mean? So right. um, that's always the problem. And it's it's a nice patriotic duty when you verify your people through E-Verify sure. rather than uh, the reverse because there's no penalty on you as an employer and that's the that's first true. thing that you have yeah. to change. Absolutely. And that's why if it becomes mandatory for everybody, the legislation that does that also protects businesses and says, look, if you went through the steps of verifying in good faith and the person ended up being illegal anyway, because they sometimes people can slip through if they've got a really sophisticated, expensive, fake identity, you're not on the hook because you followed the rules. Then you don't have to, um, when you go after businesses that are hiring illegals, once everybody has to use E-Verify, you no longer have to say, well, did you look closely enough at his green card and was there a wink and a nod? You don't have to do any of that because the business either E-Verified the employee or it didn't. And if it didn't, then they can be punished. That's an easy thing to determine, to prove, and it's better for businesses because they're protected. As long as they follow the steps, it's very easy to do. I've worked, I've sat with my office manager and E-Verified, while she E-Verified people to see the steps, there's nothing to it. As long as you do that, you would then be off the hook. You would not be liable. Um, and it would be a much more clear-cut line of how to follow the rules for businesses. So this is why Big businesses are actually more and more using it. McDonald's was one of the big, the corporate stores, the corporate restaurants, not the franchises. Some of them use it, some of them don't. But the corporate-owned stores all use E-Verify now. And that was a big 
advance in cleaning up the labor market because McDonald's used to be the number one source of no-match Social Security numbers where they sent in a number that was fake or stolen or something like that. They've cleaned that up significantly. And I think that's a great example of why it would be good for business. Sure, sure, absolutely. Now, it's bad for crooked businesses, obviously, but that's okay. But, you know, we have this, we have found, and and I think there's a lot more opportunity, that Made in America labels um, improve sales. So Mm -hmm. in the same way, all my employees are E-verified would be a very positive statement to the majority of Americans who are welcoming of immigrants. You know, we certainly came that way, and um, and, and but who want legal immigration to be the you know. And just before we switch topics to talk about a couple, well, a couple of other things, um, as we push off to take that commercial break, let's talk about next about. Whether you can do things like Medicare for all and a public uh, or a public option for all healthcare system in the United States, unless we clean up the illegal immigration issue, and we'll be back in just a moment with Mark Gregorian from the Center for Immigration Studies to answer that important 2020 question. You're listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagine America will continue in just a moment on 860 AM, The Answer. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back with Mark Gregorian of the Center for Immigration Studies. And as we went to break, the question I posed to him was, how do we do things like like Medicare for all unless we get a handle on illegal immigration? Because if you give everybody free health care, isn't that yet another magnet? Absolutely. And it's even dealing with people who are here. In other words, even if it didn't wasn't a magnet to, to draw more people in. The fact is, we have imported millions of poor people from abroad. And the issue for any kind of safety net thing, whether it's uh, you know expanded Medicare or food stamps or whatever the hell, or free preschool or anything like that, is not so much illegality. It's low levels of education and the kind of wages you can earn in a modern society and therefore the kind of taxes you can pay. So- the basic, this is one of the basic things that's incompatible between mass immigration and a modern society in a way that was not true 100 years ago. 100 or 200 years ago, there was no welfare state. And so when people say, my great-grandma from Sicily didn't use welfare, what's wrong with people today? Your great-grandma came to a country where there was really no welfare state. I mean, there was individual charities and stuff, but there was nothing like we have now. There was no Medicaid, there was no food stamps, none of that stuff. An immigrant who's coming here today from Honduras who has very little education, you know... Doesn't necessarily even speak Spanish. Yeah, well, from Guatemala especially. There are Indians, yeah, a lot Indians, of them who are coming here. Mayan. Um, they're not sitting down there rubbing their hands together saying, how do I get to America and get me some welfare? It doesn't work that way. Most, The vast majority of immigrant households who collect welfare are have workers in them. It's that because they have such low levels of education, they're a mismatch 
for a modern economy like ours, they can't earn a lot of money. If they don't earn, if their earnings are low, they qualify for all kinds of welfare programs. And you know what our welfare system is designed to do is to support the working poor who have children. Well, immigrants are kind of almost synonymous with the working poor with children. children. Right. So the problem is not a moral critique that you know some poor immigrant is coming here to rip off taxpayers. This is on us. Why are, would we be admitting people to move to our country who literally can never afford to feed their children? Because the skills they have do not result in earnings that can support themselves and their family. And so we're a civilized society. We're not going to let people's kids starve. We're not going to let people die on the steps of the emergency room. But, and I like living in a civilized society like that. But as Milton Friedman once said, you can't have open immigration and a welfare state. Now, he was for getting rid of the welfare state and having open immigration. Well, what I say to libertarians is get rid of the welfare state and then give me a call once you do that. Some kind of welfare state. And I'm a conservative. I want it to be more tightly and responsibly run and all the rest of that. But it's not going away, ever. No. And you cannot keep importing hundreds of thousands of additional poor people every year and keep a system like that, even a tighter, more conservative system of of a safety net going. Especially when we're running a trillion dollar a year sure. deficit right. and we're and we're threatening to reduce Social Security and Medicare within a decade for people who've worked all their lives for those benefits. Yep. You know, there I mean, is just a limit to the American taxpayers ability to pay aside from our instinctual humanitarian desire to embrace all these babies. Right. And again, I want to stress this is not a moral critique. A Honduran who's using food stamps is no is not the inferior to your grandma who didn't use food stamps because they never existed in the past. The issue here is a mismatch. We are importing 19th century style workers into a 21st century post-industrial knowledge-based welfare state. It doesn't work. It cannot work. The math is math. You can deny math all you want, but eventually it comes back and you have to acknowledge it. I, I think you're right. But when you are faced with the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and the regressive... Is there any other kind now? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think there still is. Maybe. Um, but the the issue is 42% of Americans now uh, label themselves as independent. Right. So what you have is the extreme on the left that says, you know, abolish ICE and the extreme on the right that says build a wall, paint it black, and put nails in it. Right. Okay. So in the middle are people like you and I. And and so our concerns about immigration, um, and both of us are the children of immigrants, is, as you've just stated, the affordability issue, okay, and the assimilation issue. Sure. And that's, and, that's one thing that and, and, I think drives a lot of people. But that's but, common to both now the illegal population and the sure. legal immigration yes. population. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, the, the concerns about assimilation, I think, underlie a lot of the concern. It's just that a lot of, not just politicians, but a lot of ordinary people don't know how to talk about it. And again, as with welfare, the issue today is not 
that you know a uh, an immigrant from El Salvador is less interested in becoming an American than somebody's grandpa from Odessa a hundred years ago. You, I hear that all the time. I don't think that's true, because a century ago immigrants came to a very different country, a country where expectations were very different. My uh, mother's I'm actually the grandchildren, a grandson of immigrants, not the son. My mother was uh, daughter of immigrants, grew up outside Boston, went to school in the 30s and 40s. In public school, what did she learn? She memorized the Gettysburg Address, sang Hail Columbia, and learned that George Washington was the father of our country. You think they're teaching that in the L.A. Unified School District or New York or Miami or Houston? No, no. And none of that, <laughs> none of that is the immigrant's fault because immigrant parents are bringing their kids to public school just like my grandparents brought my mom to public school. And they said, look, Mr. School, your job is to teach the kid how to add and read and write and all that stuff. Um, but also teach her what to think about her new country, teach her how to be an American. We are teaching a very different thing now, and that's on us. But until we can put our own house in order, how can we be taking more and more people who have to learn what it is to be an American? I mean, American kids are getting shortchanged too, but yes. at least they have you know grandparents who fought in World War II. They have an ancestor who came over on the Oregon Trail or came through. In other words, they have an American heritage in their own past. Immigrants have to be taught that and have to basically be adopted by America. And we're teaching our adoptive fellow citizens and their children about how terrible America is. And it's, you know, it's uh, phallocentric, Islamophobic, blah, 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 all the usual stuff. Yeah, see, my parents were refugees from Hitler mm -hmm. and lost their entire families in Roosevelt's very, very tough immigration. You know, my dad had to prove that he could support his, sure. And those papers are all now in the Holocaust Museum because um, by the time they could get, they got tickets for my grandparents, there were no more ships. Oh, okay. And so, you know, a interesting story offline. But my parents only spoke German when it was Christmas or a birthday and they didn't want us and they were talking about what we were going to get or they were having an argument. So my brother and I can both cuss in fluently in German, but we need, and we understand, but neither of us speaks it. In fact, my parents, when I was in first grade, made me take a speech therapy class because they were so afraid that I might roll my R's a little bit, and they wanted me to be 100% American. Yeah, my father took elocution classes when he was a kid. Yeah. It was the same idea, but again... And my dad was a PhD who spoke right. six languages. I mean, right. we're, not, we're not talking about people who came, and they... they had to work their way up. Right. But again, they they came into a different context, a Absolutely. different kind of America, where I remember uh, when I was a reporter and editor years ago, I did a story on J.C. Penney's 90th anniversary at the, at the little paper I was at. We had a Penney's in the mall. And so Penny sent out this publicity picture of Mr. Penny, James Cash Penny. That's the J.C. Mm -hmm visiting some regional managers and they were all posing for a picture on a stage you know with the high collars and the whole thing it's a you know early 1900s maybe late 1800s i don't remember what really struck me is the entire stage was festooned with patriotic bunting because american corporations were american corporations spiritually in other words they were patriot they saw themselves as patriotic institutions yes American corporations don't see themselves that in any way. In fact, they constantly deny that they're American corporations. And 
what do you expect immigrants to learn from that? I mean, they're absorbing the messages that they get from the world around them. Well, Google, Google's a great example. Absolutely. Were they were they just because their foreign workers didn't want to? They've just dropped out of a ten billion dollar DARPA program for cybersecurity, yep. which makes me want to bang my head on the on the wall. But instead, I think we'll take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to come back because we're talking about legal immigration as well. And let's talk for a few minutes about um, the president's announcement of a merit-based legal immigration system. We'll be back. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Back in a moment with more Reimagine America on 860 AM. The Answer. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with Mark Krikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies. And yesterday, uh, we had another um, new immigration plan from uh, the White House um, and it's a, it, it is based on the concept of um, merit of, of a merit-based system similar to the system that the Canadians use. And we did a show on that system about oh a year, year and a half ago. And you know, it, it, from a when you look at at the Canadian system, their merit-based system on paper. It makes a tremendous amount of sense based on the conversation we've had that we're not a society that needs low-skilled work, workers. It needs a much more, uh, we need more skilled workers. But as we've also said, some of those skilled workers come with certain issues. Yeah, I mean, there's two things to consider in what the president announced this past week. One is he is proposing to, and he's talked about this many times before, reorient legal immigration away from who you know and more toward what you know, so that a a smaller group of relatives would qualify for special immigration rights. So husbands, wives, and little kids, yes, but not adults who have their own families. Yes. You know, siblings, even adult sons and daughters who are you know, have their own families. The they, chain of the chain. Right, exactly. That creates the, the chain, chain migration where basically yesterday's immigrants decide who tomorrow's immigrants are going to be. So what he proposed is n- focusing family immigration more narrowly on nuclear family and then moving those numbers basically that, that were removed, reduced over to a new merit-based, as he puts it. I'm not sure I like merit because it sounds like people are morally better if they have a college degree, and that's not really what it is. It's sort of more a skills-based or education-based system where you would get points for various characteristics. If you have a college degree, PhD would get you more points. And If you have a job skill that's in high demand, exactly. if, you, if you have a job offer. And your age, usually, your if age, you're prime working age, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, the, your length of time in the in the workforce right. in in the Canadian system is a major determin- determinant, as is the ability to fluently speak 
English. Or and French in the case of Canada, too. Well, but For us, it would be English. But they really put the emphasis in their oh, system that's interesting. On, on English, English. because more provinces speak English uh, than French. You know, it's yeah. only in Quebec and New Brunswick right. that you have this a lot big, of French speakers, a lot of French right. speakers. In, in Manitoba, if you speak French, um, yeah. they might tolerate you. They yeah. might tolerate yeah. you. But, but if it places emphasis on on speaking English right. uh, in a way that U.S. immigrants, uh, it's almost the opposite. When you walk around the streets here in Silicon Valley, um, you hear many more people speaking Chinese, um, any of the Hindu dialects, um, Russian, et cetera, to their, uh, Hebrew, to their children. So they come to school with a right. with a, a um, abbreviated English vocabulary or speaking broken English at best. The uh, yeah, and so so the basic yes. point of this new system would be to pick people who would be more likely to contribute, and more assimilate. likely to be able to assimilate. Um, you know, less likely to be using welfare. So, in that sense, and this is something the president's talked about for a couple of years now. The principle is sound. I have some concerns, though, and my big concern is that the president's proposal endorses the current very high level of immigration of 1.1 million. So what he does is he just moves all of those green cards that now go to extended family and just moves them all over to this merit system without even a modest reduction. And I think the reduction part is an important point. People are saying, you know, what do you, why do you care about this? The fact is, we are a continent-spanning nation of a third of a billion people that invented the modern world. We don't really need any immigration at all. But there are particular categories of people that we think, that I think, everybody thinks, are so important to let in, we let them in anyway. And so that's kind of the question is, whom do we let in? Nobody has a right to come here. So we get to decide who comes in. The idea that we need... 1.1 million new immigrants every year, to me, doesn't make sense, even if they're more skilled. Because if they're more skilled, they are, in fact, less likely than unskilled immigrants to be using welfare. There's no question about it. But let's just talk about welfare. College-educated immigrants use welfare less than non-college immigrants. But they use welfare at twice the rate of college-educated Americans, about a third of households headed by a college graduate, immigrant households headed by a college graduate, use at least one welfare program. Wow. And that's that's almost double what it is the rate for U.S. households headed by a native-born college graduate. So my point is, even the welfare issue doesn't really go away. It's less serious. It doesn't go away. The assimilation issue, people don't, you know, people, I think, simplify the assimilation. They think, it's, well, if you learn English, you're assimilated. Not really. Not really. Assimilation is about sort Becoming of in your heart, in your heart, in your soul. Do kind you, of. Do you bleed yeah. red, white, and blue? Exactly. Do you at least once in a while? I'm not asking a lot. Once in a while, get a little lump in your throat when you see the flag or when you see something like this. Do the you respect is, the sacrifice that the one percent make for the other ninety nine and the ones who came before you yes, that you're not related that to? You're but not do related. You still to. respect that. Yes. So my point here is that educated immigrants have gone to school in a foreign country and learned that foreign country's nationalism and patriotism. And that's a good thing. Every country, every people should love their own countries. Less educated people, ironically, for 
for instance, see some Mayan Indians from Guatemala. They're not Guatemalan nationalists. They have no interest particularly in Guatemala. I mean, they may love their hometown and everything, but they're not politically and patriotically Guatemalan. If we had a proper education in our school systems, their kids might well become more likely to be patriotic Americans than the kids of people who are educated, have gone through foreign school systems, learned foreign patriotisms, and passed that on to their children. I mean, it's a sort of subtle point, but my point is that assimilation isn't automatically easier and better just because somebody's educated. And then the third point is economically. We always talk about how low-skilled immigration is bad for lower-skilled Americans. No question about it. But if you have less low-skilled immigration and more high-skilled immigration, guess what? That's kind of a problem for higher-skilled Americans. Well, American college graduates start suffering, like the H-1B program that there a lot are of people— There are 95—there are 144 H-1B visas handed out to tech companies, right? There are 95,000 American IT professionals out of jobs in any given year. Yep. And— about half of Americans who have STEM degrees aren't working in STEM. Correct, because um, there aren't enough opportunities. So the idea that, again, a continent-spanning nation with a third of a billion people that invented IT, the in- information technology industry was invented by the United States, the idea that we can't educate and create enough people to staff these jobs is laughable. It's, uh, it's an absurd claim that only is accepted with some level of credibility by congressmen because most of them don't even know how to turn their own computers on. And when somebody from Google or or Microsoft or Intel says some kind of whiz-bang thing about, well, we need these people because of tech talk, tech talk, tech talk, they don't know what they're saying. It's kind of like the teacher and Charlie Brown. They're just hearing a lot of noise. And it's like, okay, it must be true, so let's import more foreign tech workers. The president's proposal, I'm afraid, would actually just be H-1B on steroids. It, It absolutely is. Yeah. It, the only objection that corporate America would have has to it um, is the chain issue and the fact that it would require them to pay the same wages to those immigrants that they are paying to U.S. nationals, which is not true in the H-1B visa. And and they wouldn't it wouldn't be indentured servitude. The H-1B visa is un-American. It's indentured servitude because the visa belongs to the company and not the potential permanent immigrant. No, no, no question about that. But if the numbers are increased as much as they are under this proposal, it would be something like 400,000 or more, because they haven't given us all the real details, but like an extra 400,000, these skilled-based green cards on top of the 140,000. The indentured part wouldn't be there, but the supply shock would. In other words, a huge number of uh, amount of competition keeping Wage, wages down and opportunities down. And, and Chris Ray repeatedly goes to Congress and warns about the risk inherent in so much Chinese immigrant. Um, uh, it's a security uh, issue. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a national security issue, um, and it's a proven national security issue. And the security issue is not just the thing you were referring to, basically Chinese intelligence using it from SBI. Yeah, I was trying to they be nice. That. No, no, but that's what it is. But it's more than that. It also atrophies our ability to grow our own talent. So what happens if we need to develop our own talent? We'll be able to do it, but if the system has – if people are no longer thinking of this as a career path for themselves, young people aren't getting into that pipeline, it takes years to sort of recreate that pipeline. We are letting that 
wither because we're hooked, we're addicted on foreign cheap tech labor, and that's not healthy. And I'm not talking about the super top people. Everybody thinks we should be taking Einsteins. Einsteins can move here now. It's not a problem. It's all the people below Einstein that when you have a lot of them, it distorts the labor market, just like bringing in lots of construction workers from abroad distorts right. that labor market. And and that mar- labor market has been uh, absolutely. absolutely distorted. But I don't think, Mark, we have to worry too much about this becoming this particular plan becoming law because it's another Kushner plan. Right. And they're all still born. Yeah, no, it's not going to become a law. But I think other than Jared, who actually, I, from what I understand, actually thought it might be a legislative vehicle, pre- <laughs> the president understood, and I think others understood, that it was more kind of a statement of a... Uh, an outline, a roadmap, a campaign document. And that's not to denigrate it. That's a useful thing. You sort of talk about what you're for and what your vision is, that sort of thing. The problem is that the president is trying to get Republican consensus around this proposal of his. And the key problem here is that it doesn't even have a token reduction in overall levels. I was pressing them. I saying, look, you're getting rid of the visa lottery, which is another thing this gets rid of. Ludicrous, egregious program that gives 50,000 visas at random to anybody who can get to an internet cafe and send an application in. It's a joke. I said, just don't reassign those 50,000 numbers. In other words, cut legal immigration just by – that's like 4%. But the principle – is important because it acknowledges that there are problems with mass immigration, even if the economy is really hot, they wouldn't do it. And that is not going to get consensus because I just um, wrote at National Review this past week on a Harvard-Harris poll, the most recent one. I read it. Yeah, that said, uh, they asked people, what do you think the top priority should be for President Trump? And Trump voters, Republicans, and conservatives, they asked those three questions, overlapping groups, but, you know, similar. One out of five of them said the top priority should be finishing the wall. And another one out of five said the top priority should be reducing the number of immigrants we let into the United States. And those were the number one and two priorities for Trump voters and Republicans and conservatives. The wall part the president gets, the overall level of immigration, he just doesn't get because he thinks unemployment is low, therefore we need more immigration. No. At a time when we've got a large, unprecedented share of workers who aren't even in the labor market. I think you're absolutely right. And as we think about Social Security and the need to keep people who are not doing heavy work in the labor market longer... You know, we need to rethink the numbers and take bringing us full circle to where we began this conversation. Mark, I can't tell you how honored I am to have you and how much I've enjoyed this conversation. And I hope you will come back because there is so much more to talk about. I'd be happy to. Great conversation. Thank you so much. And we'll be back with a couple closing thoughts in just a moment. You're listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagine America will continue in just a moment on 860 AM, The Answer. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And so... 
if you'd like to hear a repeat of this po- of this show as a podcast, go to ricochet.com or reimagineamerica.org. If you've got a topic or a question or a comment about this show, Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or send me a tweet at Joyce Cordy. And we'll see you next week. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America on 860 AM. The answer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.